Hi, today I'll talk about the Constitution, the hardness of people's hearts, and the Bill of Rights. My name is Tim Harner. I am a Christian author and apologist, a graduate of Houghton College and Harvard Law School, where I was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. As an attorney, my primary role has been as a general counsel. Therefore, I call the six books that I've written the General Counsel Series. The first four books of the series outline the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, providing scriptural backing for the final installments of the series that outline the history of America and the history of the Church Universal. I post my latest thoughts regularly on my website, timharner.com. And now, as I talk about the Constitution, the hardness of people's hearts, and the Bill of Rights, let's pray that the Lord will let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord our God, who is our strength and our Redeemer. Washington not only acted according to his convictions of honor, he also acted according to his convictions of good sense. And his good sense was never more evident than at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. George Washington had the good sense to understand the times and to know what America should do. As early as 1783, a mere two years after the victory at Yorktown, Washington warned in a letter to the state governments that without a vigorous central government, everything must very rapidly tend to anarchy and confusion. Washington's unheeded advice became known as Washington's legacy. Unfortunately, by 1787, Washington's vision of anarchy and confusion was becoming an apparent reality. The six years since the victory at Yorktown had been a rude awakening for those who naively believed that independence from Britain ensured that they would all live happily ever after. An economic depression engulfed the country. Despairing farmers in Massachusetts rebelled again. This time, however, they fought not against the political tyranny of the British, but against the economic tyranny of the debt collector. The rebellion, called Shays' Rebellion, was eventually defeated. Nevertheless, the fear of Morissette's rebellions spurred people like George Washington into action. These founding fathers were determined to establish a strong national government that would ensure a strong economy. The founding fathers also knew that they must have a national ruler who could match the strength and guile of the kings who at that time ruled the world. By 1787, the nation's military and diplomatic weakness had become as depressing as the nation's economic weakness. For example, the British had not complied with many key provisions of the peace treaty that ended the Revolutionary War. Such humiliations needed to be confronted and put to an end, and only the military strength of a strong national government, together with the diplomatic strength of a strong national leader, could end them. This sense of crisis encouraged the men gathering in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention in 1787 to act boldly. Washington knew that they must cross the political Delaware and establish a new, strong central government. The Constitutional Convention had been called merely to amend the existing governmental framework of the Articles of Confederation. But Washington and the other founding fathers 
thought it best to scrap the Articles of Confederation completely and start over. They set about drafting a constitution that could provide the strong national government needed for the struggling, floundering infant nation. From their experiences with colonial legislatures, royal governors, and an overbearing central government in distant London, Washington and his fellow leaders knew that strong government could easily be perverted into tyranny. From the political theorists who studied British and French government, the founding fathers believed that they could prevent such tyranny by dividing the government's functions between separate legislative, executive, and political branches that would check and balance each other's excesses and mistakes. This good sense, based on experience, faith, and scholarly theory, served the nation well. And throughout the Constitutional Convention, Washington was a key dispenser of sensible ideas. Washington was the presiding officer of the sessions and therefore avoided commenting publicly on issues. But he worked tirelessly behind the scenes at lavish parties and informal tavern meetings to wet experience and theory into workable compromises for all. At Valley Forge and throughout years of frustrating failures during the Revolutionary War, George Washington followed Churchill's maxim by never giving in. At the Constitutional Convention, he proved his greatness by knowing when to give in to convictions of good sense. Washington knew that, with so many strong leaders expressing differing opinions and models of ideal government, compromise was the only way to establish the future greatness of America. He had the foresight to see, also, that compromise was the only way the convictions of honor and good sense could overcome divisions that sprang from selfishness and folly. Again and again, Washington found workable compromises that enabled the Constitution to be crafted with wisdom, strength, and durability. The most famous of these compromises has become known as the Great Compromise between the large states and the small states. In the Articles of Confederation, each state had one vote in Congress. The small states were happy with this arrangement. Large states complained that their larger populations diverted larger representation in Congress. The Great Compromise that in the Senate, each state would have equal voting power, two senators per state, but that in the House of Representatives, each state would have voting power based on its population. The most infamous of these compromises were the compromises with slavery and racism. Native Americans were not counted as people unless they had been conquered and were being taxed. Slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. Runaway slaves were required to be returned to their masters. The slave trade would not be abolished for at least 20 years. These dishonorable compromises would bring great evil upon America. However, two factors should lessen our condemnation of the Founding Fathers for these ill-fated compromises with evil. First, even Moses had to make compromises with evil. When Jesus said that divorce is bad, his enemies argued that divorce must be good because Moses had permitted it. But Jesus explained that Moses had only permitted divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. Second, as Abraham Lincoln argued when he explained his views on slavery, 
the founding fathers believed they had set slavery on the road to extinction. They were too ashamed of slavery even to use the word in the Constitution. Instead, the Constitution referred euphemistically to persons held to service or labor. Furthermore, they fully expected that the slave trade would be abolished once the 20 years of protection granted to it by the Constitution had ended. To appease motivated factions, they allowed for the temporary compromise of their convictions. My way of approaching such compromises with evil, because people's hearts are hard, is to compare them with a trip we took by car to Walt Disney World from our house near Rochester, New York. Early in our journey, we were happy when we'd gone far enough to reach Pennsylvania. We knew that this was not our ultimate destination, but contented ourselves with the progress we'd made, confident that we were moving in the right direction and would eventually reach our mark. Similarly, when the Founding Fathers were just beginning to point humanity toward the road to freedom, they should be commended for their first steps toward protecting all people's rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we should be merciful in forgiving their blindness to the ways in which they denied such rights to women, blacks, and Native Americans. At least the Founding Fathers were driving their car in the right direction. Returning to our vacation, it's clear that once we'd driven as far toward Walt Disney World as Virginia, it would have been foolish to turn the car around and start driving back toward Pennsylvania. Similarly, just because someone in the past compromised with evil does not mean that we should make the same short-sighted mistake. Instead, we should drive as fast as we can toward a world that is good and away from a world that is evil. Not only should we do this because it is right, but because compromises with evil will end in God's judgment and wrath. Just as America's compromises with the evils of racism and slavery led to horrifying judgment and the wrath of God on America, Lincoln stated that the horrors of the Civil War were divine judgment for the human suffering caused by this crucial error. By this standard, Judging people not by whether they have ever compromised with evil, but by whether their compromises led humanity toward good and away from evil, George Washington towers above his contemporaries and even the other founding fathers themselves. Washington was the only founding father who set his own slaves free. Not even the author of the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, believed strongly enough in the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all men to set his slaves free. Although George Washington owned slaves, he decided before the revolution that it was wrong to break up slave families. His refusal to break up families cost him a great deal of money from selling slaves. Furthermore, when George Washington died, His will provided for the gradual emancipation of his slaves in a way that would give them the training needed to be free in economic fact, as well as free in legal theory. Washington's efforts at gradual emancipation were not very successful because slavery and racism were so strong in America, but at least Washington tried to help his own slaves despite the immense odds against his success in transforming society's viewpoint on slavery at that time. Washington was willing to cross the Delaware of slavery and race because he believed 
that America must eventually destroy slavery or slavery would destroy America. As he told an English visitor, I clearly foresee that nothing but the rooting out of slavery can perpetuate the existence of our union by consolidating it in a common bond of principle. Furthermore, Washington disagreed with the racist preconceptions of people such as Thomas Jefferson that blacks were genetically inferior to whites. For example, in 1774, Washington warned that if Americans submitted to British tyranny, custom and use shall make us as tame and abject slaves as the blacks we rule over with such arbitrary sway. By inference, it appears that Washington blamed the arbitrary sway of white people over black people for the inferior status of African Americans. Moreover, Washington believed that white people could also be debased to such a sorry condition if they were subjected to the arbitrary sway of other people. It is because of such wisdom and such vision that we can truly say that George Washington was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Naturally, George Washington also became our first president. He wanted to enjoy a private life at Mount Vernon, but honor required that he serve the nation as president. Only then could he keep faith with the soldiers who suffered to establish a nation where everyone enjoyed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And naturally, while in office, Washington again showed his good sense. For example, he had the good sense to keep America out of the wars that were sparked by the French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon. This was an interesting stance for him to take. Why? If Washington had been guided solely by honor, he would have become an ally of revolutionary France. America would have lost its revolutionary war without the help of France. Furthermore, a treaty allying the United States with France continued to exist. In addition to such formal ties between the United States and France, there were sentimental ties between American lovers of liberty, such as George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson, and French lovers of liberty, such as Lafayette. For example, after the French Revolution began with the storming of the Bastille, Lafayette sent Washington the key to the Bastille as a tribute to Washington's role as the leader in the fight for people everywhere to be free. Nevertheless, Washington refused to embroil the young, struggling United States in the wars of Europe. His good sense told him that infant America needed peace with Europe to grow into a powerful nation. Shielded by the Atlantic, America could thrive without meddling by Europeans. Washington also had the good sense to back Alexander Hamilton's plans for making America a major commercial and industrial power. Instead of backing Thomas Jefferson's vision of a purely agricultural nation. Furthermore, Washington did not foster commerce and industry merely so that America could be a wealthy, powerful nation. Foreseeing that slavery was incompatible with commerce and industry, he was eager to set America on an economic course that would undermine and eventually replace the plantation system that fostered slavery. Finally, Washington had the good sense to retire after two terms as President of the United States instead of staying in office until he died. By setting this precedent that no one should serve as president for more than eight years, Washington went far to ensure 
that America would never have a king or any other kind of dictator. Returning to Mount Vernon for the last few years of his life, Washington could rest easy in the knowledge that he had kept faith with the soldiers who suffered with him during the Revolutionary War. A strong central government existed to preserve the independence of America as a place where all people enjoyed their unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The only blemishes on Washington's record were the compromises that he made regarding race and slavery. In my view, we should forgive his inability to overcome these ingrained evils of his society and the 18th century world. As a noted biographer of the first president concluded, had Washington been more audacious in his efforts to free the slaves, he would undoubtedly have failed to achieve the end of slavery, and he would certainly have made impossible the role he played in the Constitutional Convention and the presidency. Washington kept faith with America, but America did not keep faith with African Americans. One tale from around the time when Washington was president captures the frustration and anger of those African Americans whose patriotism was betrayed. It took place in Boston, a city that prided itself on being the birthplace of freedom. In Boston, it was common to harass African Americans at all times, and especially on holidays. One African American wrote how at such times we are shamefully abused, and that to such a degree that we may truly be said to carry our lives in our hands, and the arrows of death are flying about our heads. During one such Boston race riot, a group of whites attacked a group of African Americans in front of the home of Colonel Middleton, an African American veteran of the Revolutionary War. The old soldier stuck a musket out of his door and threatened to kill any white man who approached. Fortunately, a white neighbor convinced the whites to disperse. Perhaps the musket also helped to convince the whites that it was time to go. The neighbor begged Colonel Middleton to put away his gun. Colonel Middleton stood silent for a moment. Perhaps he remembered the suffering he endured to win freedom from tyranny. Perhaps he wondered why he had bothered to risk his life for racists who were hypocritical enough to claim that they believed that each person has the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then he turned and tottered off, dropping his gun and weeping as he went. We should all weep with Colonel Middleton because we must record with shame that America broke faith with African Americans who had hoped that the Declaration of Independence meant what it said, that all people have the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Years passed. Now that George Washington was no longer alive to ensure that honor and good sense guided America, it appeared that the infant nation might be torn asunder by factions and fears. John Adams followed Washington as president. He was a Federalist, meaning that he tended to favor the development of commerce and industry in the North and to fear the excesses of the French Revolution. Thomas Jefferson led the Democrats. They tended to favor farming as a way of life and to embrace the ideals of the French Revolution. Although the Bill of Rights had been added to the Constitution in 1791, the meaning and effectiveness of this safeguard of Americans' human rights remained uncertain. 
For example, in order to suppress the newspapers that favored Thomas Jefferson and the Democrats, President Adams and the Federalists enacted restrictions on the freedom of the press that would never be tolerated today. When Thomas Jefferson became president in 1801, after an election that was so close that it had to be decided in the House of Representatives on the 36th ballot, he had the honor and the good sense to end such restrictions on the freedom of the press. In his inaugural address, Jefferson declared his distinctly American faith in the good sense of the people, stating that error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. Jefferson also affirmed the American faith in the honor of the people when he said, Majorities must heed the sacred principle that, though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable, and that the minority possess their equal rights, which equal laws must protect, and to violate would be oppression. The preamble to the Constitution begins with the words, we the people. Then it lists a number of noble goals that we the people hoped to achieve by establishing the Constitution, such as forming a more perfect union, establishing justice, promoting the general welfare, and securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We the people can only attain such nobility by vindicating the faith that the Bill of Rights and Thomas Jefferson exhibited and upholding the honor and good sense of we the people. To imagine why this is so, consider again the illustration that we as a nation are like a spaceship bound for Mars. If we drift too far off course, our doom is certain. Therefore, we the people must constantly check to see whether our spaceship, America, is drifting off course. When this is determined to be the case, we the people must get our spaceship, America, back on course quickly. Otherwise, its drift will cause us to miss the target destination entirely. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights provide the framework for realizing when America is drifting from her foundational values and for getting us back on course. To keep a community on course, we must utilize the insight of every person in that community. Two heads are generally better than one, and we the people are wiser than I the narrow-minded. One way to visualize this truth is to think about those optical illusion drawings that seem to contain two different pictures depending on your vantage point. In one such drawing, some people at first see a beautiful woman. Other people at first see an old hag. When one points out the difference to the other, the other strains for a moment, then sees the drawing differently. By listening to the viewpoint of the person who differs from you, it's possible to see both the hag and the beautiful woman in the same drawing, i.e., to see reality more clearly. This psychological phenomenon leads to a realization that underlies many aspects of good government. We need one another. For example, it is better to have impartial juries decide lawsuits, while each party has his or her own lawyer. Each lawyer does everything possible to make their client look like the beautiful woman and the other party look like the old hag. Afterwards, the jury decides who looks more like a beautiful woman and who looks more like an old hag. The division of powers between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government 
ensures illuminating debates and beneficial competition as each eagerly points out ways that the other branches are acting like old hags while it is acting like a beautiful woman. Similarly, to keep America vibrant and free, it is essential to have more than one political party. Each party alerts the public to ways that America is acting like an old hag while inspiring people with their vision of how America can become an even more beautiful woman. Freedom of the press is therefore essential to keeping America vibrant and free because in any community, including America, it's easy to see only the picture that you want to see. For example, American slave owners claimed that they were treating their slaves well and that the slaves were lucky to have been brought to a Christian land where they could learn how to get to heaven. The slave owners like people who refused to see anything in the drawing except a beautiful woman. But the slaves saw that this gone-with-the-wind view of slavery was hypocritical nonsense caused by the racism and economic self-interests of slave owners. The slaves saw the truth, that the beauty of the woman America was spoiled by the ugliness of those old hags, racism, and slavery. By protecting freedom of the press, we are protecting the ability of the community to share differing viewpoints so that we, the people, can come to a better understanding of such truths. By having periodic elections, we enable ourselves to get America back on course towards its noble goals, justice and liberty for ourselves and our posterity. Only then can we protect every person's unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is worth noting that the church itself is a community that needs checks and balances as well as a Bill of Rights. Such checks and balances and clear statements of rights and responsibilities can take many different forms in Christian communities. For example, in the denomination that I was a member of when I published this book for the first time, called the Free Methodist Denomination, there are periodic general conferences to establish church policy. At these general conferences, power is shared equally between the clergy and the laity. Differences are discussed openly, and decisions are made by ballot. Term limits ensure that the chief administrative bishop rotates out of power. Such checks and balances and bills of rights are essential because they keep the spaceship called the church on course toward becoming a community in which Christians help each other overcome the old hags of our lives and of our world. In this way, our lives and our world will become more and more like the beautiful woman. Therefore, Christians are far better off seeking the kingdom of God by living in faith families as we the church, instead of by living in solitude as I the Christian. Indeed, it is a collection of such families of faith, hope, and love that comprise the true, balanced, and beautiful body of Christ envisioned by the Apostle Paul. I hope you enjoyed this podcast today. If you did, please share it with a friend and find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as my website, timharner.com. Until we are together again, may the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord turn his face toward us and give us peace.